0: Hello, I'm Jonathan Charles, and this is Pocket Dilemmas, where Kerry Law and I tackle political and economic questions which are facing the world today. Well, we hear very often, don't we, about gender pay gap, but how does the sexual orientation of people affect the way that we're all being rewarded, or indeed what we have the right to? Is it a gap which is, at the same time, both real and invisible? That's what we're going to find out. What are pocket dilemmas?
1: Are algorithms biased?
0: Take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrencies?
1: What is the future of
2: poverty? This is dilemmas at ebrd.com.
1: We are dancing the equality prom dance to show our love and support for our gay friends who are constantly having to hide their love. This is an excerpt from a film by Michal Marszak depicting the 2019 Equality Polonaise. So it shows youngsters opting to go to prom with the same-sex companions regardless of their sexual orientation in order to show their solidarity with LGBTQI friends. So the Polonaise, of course, additional traditional Polish dance performed at a studenowka, which is much like a senior prom in the U.S. So this one school in Warsaw actually has organized a prom that makes a difference. How about that?
0: Well, that's a great example of solidarity from the country, very famous for solidarity. However, a lot of our countries still have a long road ahead of them when it comes to LGBT rights. And as we know, gay marriage is still only legal in 16 European countries. Here's a very different example. Our producers spoke to Jana Yarinovska. She's head of Mosaica, that's an LGBTQI advocacy organization which is based in Latvia.
3: In Latvia, a lot of people is still in closet, and uh, I think that is one of the biggest problems uh, uh, because our gov- government don't see the people. Uh, but people uh, are so scared uh, because in 2006 we have a first uh, gay parade in Riga, and it ends very bad. And I think a lot of people still see this threat
1: that they will be hated So they are sitting in the closets and they don't come out. This is so sad. So what Jana is describing here is a major issue not only on a personal level, as you can imagine, but also for the global economy as a whole. So not allowing LGBTQI to thrive at school and in the labor market, I'm sure undoubtedly has you know consequences on the overall economy. So an economy that isn't able to value diversity and misses out on, su- on substantial benefits. Um, and if, I mean, you can imagine if you feel alienated at work, what kind of impact that has on how many sick days you take or your overall engagement at your job. And then how that trickles down to firm productivity. So, reducing the anti LGBTQI discrimination could really trigger some important economic gains.
0: So, let me remind you of our dilemma today. It's how does the sexual orientation of people affect the way we're all being rewarded, or indeed what we have the rights to? And is that gap both real? And invisible.
1: So today we have Savat Garay aksoy our principal economist at the EBRD, who, together with Kit Carpenter, professor of economics at Vanderbilt University, conducted several studies on the subject of the LGBTQI pay gap and the difficulties that arise when conducting you know, research in this field. So both of them are with us today. Savat is in the studio. Hi, Savat. Hello. And then we have Kit down the line from the U.S. So what are your five seconds on the issue? Savat, since you're in the studio, we'll start with you.
2: Okay. Um, I think I would like to start with a positive message uh, and acknowledge that there has been a huge progress in terms of uh, LGBT inclusion both at the country level and international level, thanks to globalization. Um, However, there is a huge room for progress. For example, as of 2019, about 2.5 billion people are living in countries where identifying as a sexual minority could lead to um, legal punishment, including imprisonment. Um, and looking at the EBRD region, we find that more than 50% of people would prefer not to gay or lesbian neighbors. So such legal, legal barriers and negative attitudes towards sexual minorities prevents LGBT population from disclosing their sexual orientation, which in turn makes it hard to obtain good data sets to properly identify the impact of sexual orientation on earnings.
1: Super interesting, and uh, we're going to explore a little bit of that uh, more in depth in a second. So Kit, we'll go to you. What's your quick five seconds on the issue?
3: Yeah, so thanks for having me. I think uh, it's a really important and fascinating topic and one that I've spent most of my career um, thinking about. I would agree with what Savat just said, and I would just uh, kind of stress that most of the major social change in the United States and uh, Europe and other places has been with respect to family policy, relationship recognition, and that kind of thing, uh, topics that Savat and I and co-authors have worked on. um, And that's quite distinct from labor market opportunities and policies that would uh, further, the ability for people to be out and f- uh, be free from fears of discrimination. Um, so, employment non-discrimination, for example, is something that's quite rare, even though many places have had formal relationship recognition or full marriage equality. And so, um, thinking about the policy environment as ways that also, um, you know, affect or inhibit people's ability to be their full selves in all aspects of their life, including the workplace, is important.
0: So let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems which are shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. Follow us, of course, on Twitter at ebrd. That's the handle. Uh, Make sure you get in touch. So we've already heard quite a lot uh, about the rights or lack of, for example, of LGBT uh, people in countries such as Latvia. We heard that example a little earlier. So that you start. What, what What's the research shown in a bit more depth about those lack of rights?
2: So what we did in our recent study, uh, we use confidential data from the United Kingdom, uh, where we can actually identify individual sexual orientation and their partnership status. And this means that we can directly test for how uh, sexual orientation affects uh, earnings. So, when we look at the couple-based samples, we replicated the previous findings. So, gay men face earnings penalty, lesbian women actually enjoy, quote unquote, uh, earnings premium. Uh, But when we look at the single individuals, uh, we actually found that there are no earnings gap. So, and when we look at bisexual men, we actually find that they face huge earnings penalties. So, taken together, when we try to understand how, this obtained, how, we, how we obtained these results and where these results come from, uh, we actually f- figure that some of this pay gap is actually driven by household spe- specialization. And however, we also find some evidence that supports the presence of labor market discrimination as an explanatory factor.
0: In the face of it, it would look very very odd, wouldn't it, that uh, you can, you can say there's a lesbian premium but in fact uh, for homosexual male couples uh, a complete disincentive, in fact, almost to, to go into the workplace in, term, in terms of pay. I think that that would seem on the face of it. I'm trying to think as an employer how you would even get to that position where you were discriminating positively or negatively against those two groups.
2: Um, I think this has a lot to do with uh, employers' policies. Uh, for example, in our study, about we actually find that older men face earnings penalties rather than young men. And it could be potentially that older single men actually perceive as gay and then they face this uh, discrimination at the workplace. So in a different study uh, with kids and other quarters, we use the same data sets and then we try to understand whether sexual minorities face barriers in, access- in accessing job uh, job authority in terms of managerial authority or supervisor authority Um, and there we actually find that gay men are significantly more likely to have workplace authority they are significantly more likely to be managers and supervisors on average Uh, however we find strong evidence that there are glass ceilings so this average positive effect we found is particularly driven by the fact that gay men are actually uh, low level managers rather than high level managers so and in fact when it, when we look at the high level managerial positions which comes with greater pay and social status uh we find that gay men are significantly less likely to attain these type of positions so and then we show that discrimination explains differential access to top managerial positions. So, this clearly suggests that gay men face uh, glass ceilings at
1: the workplace. So, Savat, you know, these figures are alarmingly high, um, and clearly, I mean, it points to, you know, some discrimination in, in various parts of the workplace. So would this also maybe suggest that even more marginalized people within the LGBTQI community like openly intersex and transgender employees might even face higher levels of income discrimination or even bigger discrepancies in um, their like, managerial levels?
2: Possibly, yes. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have data on this to examine further. But Kit has a very cool paper that he recently worked on this. Uh, perhaps he can explain what he found when he looked at the paper. Uh, with uh, transgender identities.
0: Kitts, why don't you give us some of your uh, research? Sure,
3: I'm happy to. Um, So, that's a fascinating question about intersex and transgender folks, and um, there the data challenges and problems are probably orders of magnitude worse Than for those of us studying sexual minorities, um, which, you know, even there the data are uh, challenged because they are limited and challenging in different ways we can talk about. Um, But in the United States, a very large survey called the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. Um, began asking self-identity questions about um, uh, gender identity and trans transgender status. So people were allowed to identify as transgender male to female, transgender female to male, or transgender uh, gender nonconforming. And so we have a very descriptive paper showing that um, for the limited range of economic outcomes measurable in that public health data set, self-identified transgender folks do significantly worse on numerous economic outcomes, such as employment, such as household income, um, as well as uh, certain measures of um, health and healthcare access as well. That's really consistent with um, this discrimination um, against transgender folks and kind of consistent more broadly with discrimination against um, uh, sexual and gender minorities that um, Savat just described in our earlier work. Um, if I could just take a quick second and come back to the um, question that was raised about this puzzling finding between the different uh, pattern of effects between uh, for lesbians uh, versus gay men relative to their heterosexual uh, counterparts, I think I would say a couple of things. I agree that it's puzzling, and I think I wanted to raise just a couple of points there. So one is that um, you know it's probably wrong to think about all sexual minorities as a, ho- a homogeneous group. So employers are primarily... Uh, men, heterosexual men, and there's lots of sociological and psychological research that there's differential disgust by straight men towards gay men relative to lesbians. So that could explain one difference in the patterns of effects. Um, Also, you know, there's common perception that maybe lesbians have characteristics that employers like relative to gay men, like maybe we think lesbians might be more aggressive or more competitive, or, you know, if you're an employer that really need somebody to close the sale you might have erroneous but strongly held beliefs that gay men are just you know not willing to compete in the workplace Um, and then finally i think it also there is some suggestion that there could be a lingering effect of the hiv epidemic which we know um, you know uh, disproportionately affected gay men relative to lesbians and so if you're an employer concerned about healthcare costs and productivity and that kind of thing you might again those beliefs might be erroneous, but you might still hold them differentially towards gay men relative to lesbians. So I agree, it's an interesting puzzle, and we need more research to try to understand kind of why employers are thinking about gay men differently from lesbians, and for that matter differently from bisexuals, intersex folks, and transgender folks.
0: I've been listening to that explanation from you, Kit, with my mouth hanging open, because actually you've just reeled off, haven't you, a staggering list of prejudices, which really affect employment in the workplace.
3: Absolutely.
0: let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com, follow us on Twitter at EBRD. And uh, very often, as we've been saying, we hear about the gender pay gap, but we are looking today at sexual orientation and how that affects the way we're being rewarded in the workplace or indeed what we have rights to and whether this gap is both real and at the same time invisible. Now, in many EBRD countries, there is no data on LGBTQI. And if people aren't openly gay, then how can we determine if there's a a gay pay gap? That's certainly one of the issues, Kit, isn't it?
3: Yes, it's a huge issue. Um, And I think it's worth raising. The very first study that did this was um, by Lee Badgett, who's a pioneer in our field. And this was back in 1994, 1995, back before any survey was really asking questions about sexual orientation, which is Um, kind of the gold standard of what um, people like Savat and I use in our recent research. But what Lee did is she was a sleuth, and that's really what those of us working in this area have had to be, which is she looked for data sets that had other measures of sexual orientation that you could plausibly infer um, meant uh, that the person was a a gay man or a lesbian or a bisexual person. And so she used this data from the General Social Survey, which happened to ask people about the sex of their sex partners, since age 18 and in their lifetime. And while sexual behavior is not a perfect proxy for sexual orientation, it's not an awful one either. And so she was the first to get uh, research published in credible mainstream journals showing that, in fact, um, men who reported same-sex partners Um, Earned significantly less money than otherwise similar uh, men who reported different sex sex partners. And since then, people like myself and Savat and others have really followed in that uh, line of uh, inquiry of being our own sleuths, of thinking in these places where discrimination is such or where political um, uh, uh, environments are such that we're not asking the questions about sexual orientation, what other indirect ways can we find these folks in data? And so you've already heard Savat allude to one of them, which is to find people in partnerships. So a very common way is to find data sets that ask people to identify the sex of other people in the household, and some subset of those data sets also ask you to identify how you're related to the person who answers the phone or the person who fills out the form. So in those types of data sets where nobody actually has to um, vocalize being gay or lesbian or bisexual, which might be very difficult for the reasons um, played in the clips that you played, um, you know, that's another very fruitful way that um, economists and sociologists and demographers have quote unquote found Um, these hidden samples of people in same-sex partnerships with the obvious limitation that not all LGBTQI people are in same-sex partnerships. But these are the creative ways that we've had to use in order to document what we know about sexual minorities. And to our credit, I think now we have a very substantial knowledge base to go from.
1: So Kit, you know, when you were conducting your first research, um, you know, you found in California that there there wasn't a, a pay gap based on the data sets. And you kind of just explained a little bit how you, um, you know, broadened your research in order to kind of capture some of these different um, points of data that you could include in data set. What are, what are the main challenges in in kind of collecting this data?
3: Yeah, I think you've already raised a couple of them. Um, The obvious ones are just that it's hard to be out in places where it's hard to be out, which sounds silly, but we all know what that means, where the political climate is such that attitudes are not very positive towards um, LGBTQI individuals. I I do want to go on record uh, for that first study that I did write in California, which basically showed no earnings difference between self-identified gay men and lesbians compared to self-identified heterosexual people with the same characteristics. That study was very unpopular when it came out. Um, Certainly one view of that study was that I was saying that there's no discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. That, by the way, is not my own personal interpretation of those results. My own personal interpretation, and one I think is consistent with the facts, is that in California, where there was very positive attitudes towards uh, LGBTQI folks, and importantly, very strong legal protections on the basis uh, in an employment and uh, workplace settings on the basis of sexual orientation, it is plausible that it's precisely because of those protections that I didn't find um, differences in self-identified, um, be- in earnings between self-identified sexual minorities and self-identified heterosexual people. But certainly the the study raised a whole host of challenges, even in that very liberal place that asked questions, California, that is, that asked questions about sexual orientation, let me just give you one example. In that survey, in the very first time that they asked direct questions to tens of thousands of people, which was very progressive at the time, um, they asked uh, the following question to ascertain sexual orientation. It said, um, are you, question mark, gay, lesbian, or bisexual? That was intended to be a yes or no question, but many people did not interpret it that way. And in fact, what happened was there was an an, an unusually large number of people who reported bisexual, unusual relative to other credible population-based surveys that we know uh, approximately the rate that we should expect for people to identify as bisexual. That is to say that it is almost surely what happened was people with, and it was also shown that that occurred disproportionately among people with low levels of education and for whom English was not their first language. Many people almost surely interpreted that question as, are you gay, lesbian, or bisexual? Well, I know I'm not gay, I know I'm not lesbian, I don't know what that last thing is, but I know I'm not the first to. so I must get a- that last thing. And that's just one example of the challenges here. So translation challenges, language challenges. In many countries, actually, there is no objective word for a sexual minority. They're all epithets. And so, you know, how do you ask somebody about their sexual orientation when there's literally no way to do that? Those are some of the challenges in doing this research.
0: That raises another question, doesn't it, Kip, which is the question of uh, gender fluidity? And, uh, you know, I know in the past Stephen Cox, who is the diversity and inclusion ambassador at Fujitsu company Fujitsu actually said that while gender is typically considered to be binary, sexual orientation and gender identity aren't. Uh, so does that uh, complicate matters? Because if you've got gender fluidity in that sense, and, or people's fluidity over how they perceive themselves, does that influence the, the compiling of research in this area? It influences it
3: enormously. And this is unfortunately a place where social scientists and economists Um, including those of us who like to do right by the LGBTQI community are often perceived as uh, folks who are not trying to do right by the community. And that is because um, as social scientists, we need to put people in boxes in order to measure them and accurately describe earnings gaps. Unfortunately, um, particularly for the younger folks these days, um, they either abandon labels altogether or they demand labels that don't neatly fit into boxes. So it is not uncommon for surveys that really want to be very um, you know, open to people's different identities to include four, five, six, seven, eight response options for sexual orientation and then a bunch more for g- gender identity. And that is all well and good in theory, But a hard fact is that what we know from all credible population data sets on sexual orientation and gender identity is that sexual and gender minorities are a very small proportion of the total population. And so unless you have a gigantic survey, such as the ones that Savad and I have had the pleasure to be able to work with in the United Kingdom, you just are not going to have the sample size when you start allowing people to say, You know queer or something else i don't use labels etc and while i completely as a person a citizen of the world understand um you know and and respect people's desire to eschew labels as a social scientist and as somebody who's trying to advocate for equality um i wish i could have conversations with those folks sometime and say you know I'm on your side and I'm trying to do right by you. And it is actually quite difficult if I can't make a statistical case because people are, you know, government policymakers, uh, et cetera. Those folks can be persuaded by statistics um, if used effectively. And so there is this inherent tension about fluidity versus forcing people into boxes, and that's just something that those of us in the field have to wrestle with consistently.
1: Okay, you you may have just answered my question then. You know, I was going to ask, at an organizational level, do you think that um, things like pay equity for the LGBTQI community should be tracked just as many organizations track pay equity for women? Would that help kind of solve some of these pay equality differences in the community, or do you just think the sample size is just too small?
3: You know, that's a really fascinating question. I mean, as a researcher, my first uh, response is always, yes. Let's track it. Let's track it. Let's measure it. Let's do, you know, get all of the different measures that we can. I think one, you know, the sample size issue is a real challenge, but I think one reason to track it is that one, we could do a a lot of really interesting descriptive work about kind of how LGBT rights in the population in the different countries, which are changing very rapidly, but also very differentially across countries, how that's related to private employer decisions about what they're doing in their workplace. And we know shockingly little about that um, in any part of the world, really. And then the second thing is really, it's not right to think, I don't think, about LGBT pay equality as only relevant for LGBTQ folks. So many straight folks want to work in inclusive environments. Many queer folks want to work in workplaces that value women and racial and ethnic minorities, et cetera. And so I think you might uncover a lot of, this is part of the whole quote unquote business case for diversity, but I think it's plausible that you could uncover lots of really interesting relationships about the timing of when firms kind of go Progressive with respect to a range of LGBTQI policies and, you know, the proportion of women, uh, in the workplace or self-reported happiness or, you know, quit and turnover rates. All those types of things could be plausibly affected.
1: It's interesting that you mention, um, you know, the comparisons across countries because we came across the rainbow LGBTQI index by the European Region of International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans, and Intersex Association. And this index rates 49 countries in Europe. It reflects the legal and policy and human rights situation of of the LGBTQI community. And, you know, with one being uh, on the scale of one, you know, one to 49, one being full respect of human rights, full equality for the LGBTQI community, and 49 being, you know, gross violation of of rights and some discrimination and actually we found that some ebrd countries of operation actually come quite high on that list so you have greece at number 14 closely followed by croatia at number 17 slovenia at number 18 and then latvia is number 40 out of 49 what do these indexes really mean and can they really have an impact
3: What do these indexes really mean? I think that is a fascinating and a million dollar question. And it's related to a working paper that Savat and I have going right now. And the reason that it's an interesting question is because it certainly is a chicken and an egg kind of problem, um, which is um, I I do think that they are meaningful in a relative rank kind of sense. So, um, you know, it is probably the case that the countries that score more progressive really do have more progressive on the ground attitudes towards, Um, LGBTQI folks than the countries that score less progressive. I think the million dollar question and challenge is when you look at changes over time, do those changes over time in environment and policy, um, you know, do those reflect, do policies reflect change? Changes in attitudes, or do policies cause changes in attitudes? And for those of us who are trying to advocate for more equal policies, that's you know understanding which direction the causality runs is kind of you know really important. Um, but it's also made very difficult because it is so inherently tied together in places with representative democracies, in particular. And so that's why this working paper that we've recently released is, I think, uh, getting some real traction on that issue. And I don't know, Sabet, you want to describe that?
2: Um. Yeah, so in that working paper we actually try to understand whether laws shape attitudes or they simply reflect students' understanding of life. Um, But it is is really empirically difficult to establish relationship in this. Uh, So what we do, we use a survey, European Social Survey, and we provide evidence on the relationship whether laws shape attitudes. Uh, So we use data from 2002 to 2016, and we basically use variation in the timing of same-sex relationship recognition policies. Uh, and we actually find that legal relationship recognition is associated with statistically significant, significant improvements um, in attitudes towards sexual minorities. So, and we, we then look at effects across different demographics, and we find that Uh, these effects basically widespread across uh, demographic groups and I think what is more important we actually show that the effects we identify uh, emerge after the policy adoption not before which actually reflects that basically laws shape attitudes. It doesn't reflect Basically, it's, still, it's not it's not the other way around, but the law-shaped shape fit which is very important.
0: So that's very interesting in terms of the role for government here then, Sevat. Uh, how does that play into this? Is it enough for governments just to legislate? Or do they have to do much more in terms of the, the general atmosphere they give off in the way they run a country? Um,
2: I think government intervention is likely to be the key, uh, both in terms of... Uh, progressive labor market legislations and labor market inclusion and also in terms of same-sex uh, relationship recognition policies uh, because these policies will then encourage people to come out of the closet and then also address discrimination in the labor market. So actually then sexual minorities will be better off eventually. And as Kit said and emphasized before, diverse workplace will be beneficial for then like everyone and also entire economy.
1: Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine... If this actually held true for a lot of social uh, beliefs, you know, we could just change the law, and then it changes people's attitude. Mm-hmm. That that's amazing. Um, Kit, let me bring you in. What do you think? So your California example is a really good one here. So. So so it seems like like society is kind of ready for this. But uh, how much how much was the government kind of a part of making society ready for this? Or was it kind of more of a grassroots movement from the society making policy um, makers kind of make a change?
3: So I think um, I I mean, I think these are really tough and thorny questions and questions that it's actually very difficult for social sciences. Not extremely well suited. Uh, I mean, I think we're the right discipline to try to get at this, but these are really thorny empirical questions. Um, the question that I think that, uh, is raised in my mind based on this series of questions is kind of the role for courts versus legislatures. So, um, you know, I think of the case of relationship recognition and marriage equality throughout the United States. Um, you know, that really wasn't through the representative legislatures. Um, that was through courts making decisions that were quite surprising to the people at the time. Um, and there is also some evidence in the United States that these courts, uh, you know, these are state Supreme Court rulings, as it was in California, as it was in Massachusetts, as well as United States Supreme Court rulings, two major ones, U.S. v. Windsor in summer 2013 and Obergefell v. Hodges. Hoff- in summer 2015, and these were Supreme Court cases that were um, not expected at the time. These were court cases that were really resolving circuit splits in the United States, where um, you know some circuits, including uh, the circuit in which I'm based right now, Tennessee, Tennessee, uh, Ohio, Kentucky, and Michigan, had ruled that in fact um, other more progressive interpretations of um, uh, same-sex marriage were not going to bind on their state until the Supreme Court stepped in. So the the surprise nature of those things provides us with some kind of more plausibly, in social science and economics, we call this plausibly exogenous. It comes from the outside of the system, exo. It did not kind of grow from within societal attitudes. And so in those cases, I think the evidence is stronger that government really can play a role, in particular the courts, in protecting the rights of the little folks. And that that, uh, action has also helped to shape uh, more positive attitudes towards LGBTQI people in the United States, for sure.
1: So our dilemma today is how the sexual orientation affects the way we're being rewarded or what we have the rights to do. Is this gap both real and invisible? What are your conclusions? So Sivat, I'll start with you from our conversation today. What are your key takeaways?
2: Uh, well, I think as we discussed, uh, this is a work in progress. And what we what we observed that since the early 1990s, with the encouragement of United Nations, about 50 countries decriminalized homosexuality about 30 countries have introduced uh, full legal uh, recognition of same-sex marriage and so on. So it has been a work in progress that has been huge progress. Uh, Is it enough? It is not. Uh, But what this trend shows that as expansion of these pro-LGBT legislations uh, go ahead, then we will have more inclusive society. And then there are also studies, descriptive studies, which actually show that Societies with more inclusive studies, they have higher GDP per capita. So I think eventually things will get better, but it takes a lot of time. Uh, Governments are very important players uh, in this, and we need uh, more and
3: better data.
1: Well said. Kit, over to you. Yeah,
3: I mean, I think the gap is clearly real, but right now a lot of the people are invisible, and we need to fix that by um, inducing and in some cases requiring people, uh, governments in places um, that have not traditionally asked or allowed an indirect identification of um, sexual orientation and gender identity to get those places to include those questions. And I think we will be um, sometimes um, uh, shocked by the amount of discrimination against LGBTQI folks that still exists in the world. Um And then, but documenting it will allow us to do something about it. And I think that's an important first step.
0: Kirsten Sevat, thank you for that fascinating evidence. I mean, Kerry, listening to all of this, what really struck me was that employers have to be much more active in this arena. They've been active in so many arenas. Uh, gender, for example, uh, particularly making sure that women are not discriminated in the workplace. But there's clearly a huge amount to do in this area, and and clearly employers as well are not quite as active as they are in some other areas.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I would even, I, I guess one of my big takeaways is maybe even more at a, at a more macro level. So, you know, I'll echo what Savat said. So despite the shifts towards greater acceptance um, across the OECD countries of the LGBTQI community, um, it's clear that discrimination. Discrimination is rampant so you know it sound, sounds like we all really have a role to really try to break down these barriers and highlight discriminating policies and really call out some of these acceptable or unacceptable practices um, but also to advocate for more inclusive practices in our own organizations um, and in government policies so uh, I guess because today one of my big key takeaways and I, I echoed it before was that government and these policies can be pow- powerful influencers on the way that um, society kind of shapes their attitudes
0: yeah no I, I think it's uh, certainly something actually personally I'm very keen we should follow actually and we'll come back to you maybe on pocket dilemmas as well actually as this research continues because it, it's a very very important area for the economy Uh, and can't be ignored and and very important for the individuals as well concerned. Uh, You've been listening to Pocket Dilemmas. It is the podcast which explores the political and economic problems which are shaping our world. Uh, We'd love you to review us on iTunes. You can email us as well at dilemmas at ebrd.com. Follow us on Twitter. we love that too. At EBRD is where you'll find us. us. Goodbye.